So Mark 12, 35. We're actually just going to go 35, 36, and 37. Mark 12, 35, 36, 37. And this is just titled, David's Divine Descendant. All right, David's Divine Descendant. Short passage, a lot of, a lot of good, basic truth. So look at, uh, at 12, 35, 36, 37 with me. It says, Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. So again, we have, we have David's divine descendant and just, just three, three simple things. We're going to look at an, un, an unasked question. Let's see if I can untie my tongue first. An unasked question. An understood quote. And, and then just some unusual, unusual quiet. All right, so we've got an unasked question, understood quote, and then just unusual quiet. So we get to verse 35 with an unasked question. Says Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, now it says he began to say, uh, the, the actual word is, um, is a word that has to do with answering. He was actually answering something. And it's, it's a long Greek word. It's called apriconomahi. Say that five times fast. Apriconomahi. But, but it, it, it just means answering. It means to give an answer to a question proposed or to begin to speak, but always where something has preceded, right? where always something has preceded, either said or done, to which the marks refer. Well, why is that? What question are we talking about? Well, we know in verse 34, Jesus told, he told the scribe what? You are not far from the kingdom of God. All right, we understand that. Verse 34 he said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. So the, so the implication is maybe he was, he was answering a question in the scribe's demeanor. Maybe he was, maybe the scribe actually asked something we don't know about. You know, he could have asked. He says, Well, what do I lack? How do I enter? How, you know, what do you mean close? What does, that, what does close mean, Jesus? What? what what else, what else do you need? What else can I do? What's this close thing about? But, but we, get, we get the idea from the language that he was answering something. Okay, he was answering something. He was answering something that preceded it. And so he answers basically with, with, with a question. And the question can be boiled down to this, essentially. And it says, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? Which is what? Which is a linchpin question. And it's a question, even today, that, that what? It affects friends. It affects families. It affects lives. What do you think about Christ? I mean, that's a great conversation opener. Hey, what do you, hello, Joe, George, Betty, Fred. What do you think about Christ? What do you do with Jesus? I mean, I, I like that better than, well, if you died today, you know, what would happen to you? 
I just think, hey, what do you think about Christ? And so that's, that's really at the heart of what he's asking. We also need to understand that, that Christ and Messiah are the same words. Christ was a Greek word, Messiah was a Hebrew word, uh, both meaning you know, at their core, anointed one. We also know that since the days of David, what have the Jews been looking for? They've been looking for Messiah. We know that during the Diaspora, when, when Israel was scattered, all right, when they were all over, that longing had increased. There was a surge of nationalism, especially during the time of like the Maccabean revolt, during the Maccabeans. There was a huge surge of nationalism. Man, I hope this is not going to be ongoing. I'm just going to stop now. That's what I, need. I just need a drink, yeah. So during the time of the Maccabeans, surge of nationalism. And that fueled the expectancy of, of, of the Messiah, okay? They were looking for the Messiah, looking for the Messiah. We also know during this same era, Pharisaic, Pharisaism was born. Okay, that's, that's when the Pharisees came to rise, came to power. And so they were swallowed with messianic fever just in its infancy. And they, they were you know, continuing that on to Jesus' day. So there's this great anticipation looking for the Messiah. Everyone was looking for him. Everyone knew that he was going to be David's son. Everybody knew that. It, it was just, it was taught, it was understood. And we know that son, in, in this case, equals descendant. And we also understand that, that you know, David was probably Israel's greatest king. Right? Israel's greatest king. So Messiah was his descendant who was going to what? He was going to restore David's kingdom to its original glory. That was the mindset. David's descendant is going to come along. He's going to restore our nation to its former glory. That's what he's going to do. That was the expectation. Even the prophets said the Messiah would come through the line of David and reign on the throne of David. You can go to 2 Samuel 7 and, and Micah 5, 2. Uh, I believe I put Isaiah 9, 6 up there. We, you know, we know this passage that says what? For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From them on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So there's anticipation for David's descendant to come along, restore the nation. And so at Jesus' birth, this line of David was emphasized as well as his reigning on the throne. What does Luke one thirty one tell us? It says, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb, bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Luke one thirty one thirty two. So the prophets have talked about it. And people had stated it at different times. His, his lineage was declared in multiple places. Mark ten forty seven. What did Bartimaeus call him? He said, son of David. Son of David. Matthew 12, 23, the crowds that saw his power said, this can't be the son of David, can he? Matthew 15, 22, even the Canaanite woman who had someone healed called him Lord, son of David. Why is that prevalent? Because it was on people's minds. Son of David. The Messiah is coming. He's going to be in David's line. David's lineage. Son of David. He's, he's coming. He's going to be a physical person. And, and religious leaders, remember, we're still in the temple. 
Okay, it's still Tuesday. Still Tuesday. He's still teaching. And so everyone gathered around, especially the leaders, understood the Messiah would be a physical descendant. All right, they got that. And and they knew, and, and here's where Jesus goes, they knew Psalm 110 was a psalm about that. They all understood Psalm 110, talked about that. So we have this unasked question where essentially Jesus is saying, okay, what do you think about the Christ? What, what are you doing about the Christ? What do you think about Messiah? We get this question hanging out there. So then he takes them to a familiar quote, an understood quote in verse 36. And he says, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. Now, this, this particular quote has tons of scripture associated with it in the context of things. The, the, the New Testament has more references and allusions to Psalm 110 than to any other single Old Testament passage. Okay, the New, New Testament has more references and allusions just to Psalm 110 than any other single Old Testament passage. I put, I put some of them up there. I, I didn't catch them all. But just to give you an idea... Especially verse 1 and verse 4. I mean, those, those are popular catches in the New Testament. Right, so there, there's tons of scripture associated with these phrases. We also see, and this is kind of fun, I, I like this because it, it's a Trinitarian statement. Right? This, this, one, this one little verse, it's a Trinitarian statement. What do we have? We have the first person of the Godhead, speaking to the second person of the Godhead of the Trinity. And we hear it through David by the power of the third person of the Trinity. So one's talking to two through the power of three. So we get a Trinitarian statement, which is kind of neat. But I also want, you, want us to understand and look at the titles that, that are associated with this. Because it's, it's just, it's a strong, succinct, powerful passage. Because it essentially says, The Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, said to my Lord, Adonai, the Messiah, Sit at my, the Father's, right hand, which is what? The place of highest authority and honor, until, or it could even be translated while. Okay, so the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, the Messiah, Sit at my, the Father's, right hand, until, or while I, the Father, put your, Messiah's, Enemies under your Messiah's feet. What happens when you do that? It brings about their subjugation. Uh, in fact, you know, Joshua 10.24 and Hebrews 10.12 you know, give us this idea of subjugation being at, at, uh, at his feet. But, but let, me, let me read you the whole psalm. And you're welcome to turn over to Psalm 110. It's, it's seven verses. Psalm 110. Because this is, this is what we're dealing with. And this is where Jesus is taking them. Because remember, he's asking them a question, an answer to a question that's kind of hanging out there. So he takes them to Psalm 110. Here's the whole psalm. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Verse 3, Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 5. 
The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And just as an aside, I, I, I love some of the word choices. He will shatter. It's not that he will just defeat or he will destroy. Okay? He will not just defeat kings in the day. He will not just destroy the chief men. He will shatter. You ever broken a mirror? Or broken a big mirror? I mean, there, you know, there's one, it's one thing to destroy a mirror, which maybe, you know, you hit it once and, and it, you know, breaks in half and it's destroyed or it's damaged. Man, but you shatter a mirror and it's just, it, goes, it goes into tiny pieces and shards and things that get into everything. And that's, that's why I like, again, I mean, this is just an aside, but, but I like the language. He will shatter, he will decimate his enemies. So Jesus takes him to Psalm 110, and he does it so he can deliberately raise this issue so that the listeners would relate it, what, to him. Okay? He wanted his listeners to relate it to him because it carried this bold yet a veiled reference to his true identity. Now we also figure, and you've got to figure, the Jewish leaders caught it. Okay, the sharp Jewish people caught it. Now, they didn't accept it, but they caught it. But it's interesting, too, because Psalm 110 doesn't just stress the humanity of Messiah. It doesn't stress his humanity, sorry, but it stresses his divinity. And it raises the question, well, how could David's son be David's Lord? Again, think traditionally, Jewish family, you know, patriarch, his son would not be like, be like Stephen coming in and, and being my Lord. That just does, as uh, much as I love my son, that's just not going to work in my world. So, so you understand the dilemma. How, you know, how could David's son be his Lord? Well, we know it was the incarnation of Jesus as God and man. It was human and divine. It was physical and supernatural. It, you know, Paul even taught about it over in Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 3 and 4 says, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. We know that John writes to us, you know, in the first chapter, he says, The Word became flesh, and what? And dwelt among us. God in the flesh. He is God, born of the flesh. God came to us not as a phantom or a hybrid creature, an angel, but as one of us. And Jesus is saying, look, God has come among you. That's what he was telling the Pharisees. God has come among you. You're gazing on God in the flesh. There was that reference. And, you know, and Jesus was saying, do you see it? Do you get it? But it was told. It was, it was told in a number of places. You know, you know some people say that there, there just there are no there are no places in the Bible where Jesus claimed to be God. And I don't know. Maybe maybe they they've got kind of a flawed hermeneutic. Um, because this this is a clear place where he says, "Look, here's God in the flesh." 
Think about Zacchaeus over in Luke 19, 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Interesting thing about Zacchaeus, the background is probably Ezekiel 34, 15, because he was saying, I will feed my flock, I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. So in that instance, what did everyone who knew the scripture hear Jesus say? I will seek the lost. Who's seeking the lost? God is seeking the lost. Who is Jesus? He's God. But the psalm goes beyond Messiah's humanity as deity. Because, it, you know, especially as we read further along in Psalm 110, we get the, those great pictures of coming in power to overthrow his enemies. Verse 2 says, He will what? He will rule in the midst of thine enemies. Well, who were his enemies? The people that he was talking to in the temple. Those Jewish leaders who opposed him. Remember, that was suggested in the parable of the vineyard and the vine growers. And he said, look, Messiah's enemies are enemies of Jesus. They're the, they're the leaders of this nation who, who have prostituted their power and position for their own personal gain at the expense of the most vulnerable. I mean, we know contextually during that time, Widows were the ones who, who got the shortest end of the stick, especially the way power was abused. So no wonder God was about to destroy them. No wonder God was about to, you know, in that passage, terminate them as it were. See, by, by bringing to mind Psalm 110, Jesus made it clear that, that they not only had a grievance with Jesus, who claimed to be both human and divine, but more so... They were inconsistent with their scriptures, even those written by King David himself, which spoke of Messiah as man and God. And something else that would have kind of rankled them too, as, as if all this wasn't enough. But something else, especially in, in that psalm, the second stanza in verse 4, talks of the Messiah not only as Israel's king, but as a type of priest. Okay? So not just a king, but a priest. Now think about this. All right, we're in the temple. He's talking to priests. How would you feel about a new order that, that didn't include you? You've been a priest. Your dad was a priest. Your grandfather was a priest. And the reference is one, in 110 is about a new priest from the order of Melchizedek, and it doesn't include you. We know that the priesthood of a few would become the priesthood of all believers, especially of Gentiles. Yeah, that sat really well. And the great high priest, of course, Christ himself, a priest after the order, as Scripture says, of Melchizedek. Whole different topic, whole different direction. So there's all this language. But, but it's really, really a simple thing. And, and we know, for instance, the testimony of, of the early church was very, very basic. It was very, very simple. It, it was this. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. But because of what Scripture said about the Messiah coming from the lineage of David, 
the Jews expected him to be just a physical descendant of David. And here's what's interesting. You get the idea that the thought of the supernatural never really entered their mind. Never really came into the picture. He'd just be a man. All right, he'd just be a man coming along, maybe like David. So when Jesus comes along and he said, David himself calls him Lord, he, he throws the scribes into this theological dilemma. And again, how, how could the Messiah be both David's son and his Lord? We get the idea that they never really thought of that. But they had to start putting the pieces together and understanding that, okay, well, Messiah can't be both David's son and his Lord if he's just a human. It would take a divine person to do that. I mean, you can, you can, I mean, you can see gears turning, smoke coming out of their heads as they're, oh, well, so wait a minute. So he's saying, and not just a man, but man and God, and how does that all tie together? And then, once again, the scribes have no answer. You know, you, you, you can almost hear you know, Jesus asking these things, saying these things, and there'd just be dead silence. I mean, you could hear the crickets chirping. If they, do they have crickets there? I don't know. If there are crickets, they were chirping. Because there was just, there was nothing. People were dropping pins left and right. It was really low, noisy. So there's a silence. So he, he quotes this piece of a familiar passage. And it brings us to this, just why I put unusual quiet in verse 37. He says, David himself calls him Lord, and so in what sense is he his son? Jesus, he's asking simple questions. What sense is he his son? And then we get the little epilogue, the great crowd enjoyed listening to him. We see, first of all, the conspirators were losing. In fact, I like the parallel account in Matthew 22, because Matthew twenty two forty six. Ties it up like this, says, No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Now we know Mark gave us a similar statement a little earlier. Matthew just, he, he kind of caps it off here, and, and I like putting it here because it tie, ties everything in a nice little package. Because this, this really is when the questions are done. So he says, No one was able to answer him a word. But I, I love the B part of 2246. Nor did anyone dare... From that day on, ask him another question. I mean, they were getting hammered. They were getting shot down left and right. They thought they were being clever, and he just kept hitting them. So, so the conspirators were losing. I mean, they were, they were losing, goodness, they were losing you know, reputation and status and standing and, and respect and everything else. They, they were losing everything that they thought they had a pretty good handle on. And they were losing it in front of these people who were, at least heretofore, looking up to him. So the conspirators were losing. They were losing on every front. And the crowd was listening. It says the crowd was listening with delight. Not necessarily comprehension. And you have to wonder if part of their delight was because Jesus was just, he was drilling these religious leaders that, they have been listening to and following and, you know, perhaps being berated by or, or looked down upon. And Jesus is coming along and maybe they were just having a good time saying, oh, he, he tore him up again. 
I'm going to write that down. So I think that was some of the delight. You know, we've talked before about, obviously, Jesus was a good speaker, right? He was engaging. So and we, we know that the, the people resonated with him, and, and he connected with them, and, and you know, he said things, that, oh, well, yeah, I, I see that. So the crowd enjoyed him from that standpoint. But I also think, and, and this is Kev's spin on it, in the context of the temple and the court of the Gentiles and everybody standing around, and watching these different conspiratorial groups, <laughs> these different groups come in and try to trip him up, and he just he derails them and, and turns tables on them and, and messes them up. I, I think there's some delight from them. So our, our conspirators are losing ground. The crowd's listening. Not necessarily catching everything, but they, they like the fact that Jesus is coming along and, and muzzling these leaders. Oh, look, he just did that to Rabbi Joe again. You know Rabbi Joe, he just doesn't quit talking, and Jesus made him quit talking. There's got to be something good about it. But we also understand that Christ was looking. Conspirators were losing, the crowd was listening, but we also understand that Christ was looking. He, he was staring them in the eyes. It's not like he was standing on a, an elevated pulpit far off. No, he was in the people. He was in the crowd. He was in the midst. And he was staring these people in the eyes. Because each of the evidences needed for believing his deity and humanity was crystal clear. But they, they, they checked their hermeneutics at the door. They, they, they didn't want to change their view. They didn't want to change their interpreta- interpretation to submit to the divine evidence. They wanted to stick with their own propositions about the Messiah, regardless of what God had said. And they wouldn't budge because to do so would crush their pride. So he was just he was looking at him. He was staring him at a, staring at him in the face, looking him in the eyes and kind of looking into the heart. And isn't it true he does that with us? I mean, he stares right at us. The living word delves into our hearts. And, and, and he says, what do you think about the Christ? What are your thoughts about who Christ is? What are you telling others about who Christ is? What does what you do and say proclaim to him? Because here's some things I know. I, I know that there are, there are those, maybe here, maybe not, who, who let pride or stubbornness or fear or whatever get in the way of Christ. That that pride... That stubbornness, that fear. I mean, just like these religious leaders. Man, they were prideful. They were stubborn. They were afraid. And they let that get in the way of who Christ was and, and what he came to do. And subsequently, they weren't brought to repentance. They weren't brought to belief and faith. There are people like that today. Man, they are just stubborn. You ever dealt with stubborn person? They're just stubborn. I've, one of the scariest things I can, everyone, anyone can ever say to me is, I don't care what the Bible says. This is what I believe. 
Lord, help you if you ever say that. If you ever say, I don't care what this says, God's living word. I don't care what this says. Lord, help you. One of the reasons that we face so many of the problems we face is people say, well, I don't care what it says. This is what I know. This is what I believe. This is what I've experienced. This is what, I've shared this before, my favorite one. This is what's worked for me. I don't care what God's word said. This is what has been successful in my life. That's, that's, that's who these people were. They said, look, I, I don't care what the evidence says. I'm not interested in what the evidence is. It messes up what I've been doing my whole life. And there are people today who say, I, I don't care what God's word says. I, I'm going to stick in my pride or my stubbornness or my fear. Because, goodness, what happens if I change my stance on Christ? Well, I might have to repent. I might have to change who I am. I hope, I hope that's none of us. I hope none of us are sitting here thinking, well, I'm just going to stay in my stubbornness and my pride and my fear and not repent and not turn and not come to faith. So if that's you, oh, Lord, help you Repent. The Bible says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. But for those of us who know him, what's that mean to you? What are you doing with Christ? Now remember, we're coming off, we're coming off the passage that, that you know, he says, what are the two great commandments? Love God with everything about you. And then love your neighbor. So we're coming off of that where he's saying, love God with everything you have. And then he's showing them who God is in the flesh. What do you say about Christ? What are you going to do about me? And this is not something I normally do, but, but I wanted to share, and, and it's, it's a decent chunk of an excerpt. From, a, from an old book by a guy named J.C. Ryle who, who he wrote some decent stuff. But he, he wrote a book called Holiness, It's Nature, Hindrance, Difficulties, and Roots. Okay, holiness, It's Nature, Hindrances, Difficulties, and Roots. And he wrote it back in 1877. Now, I always point out things like that because it's fascinating to me to look at the cultural context. Because we look at where we are and think, man, we, we, just, we have slid so far. And yes, in so many ways we have. But 1877, I want you to keep that in mind. Because in 1877, Ryle was calling believers to warm, Christ-centered, evangelical piety. He was exhorting Christians to flee religious externalism. Okay, to flee religious externalism and pursue disciplined communion with Christ for the joy of knowing Him more. The introduction is that Ryle is clear about the doctrine of justification by faith alone on the ground of Christ's righteousness alone. But he's equally clear that believers must exert diligent effort to love Christ, keep his commandments for the joy of knowing him more. And so I just have, I have an excerpt from the 15th chapter of his book. Because it has so much to say about 
What are you doing about Christ? What do you say about Christ? What do you do with Christ? In the 15th chapter, it's titled, Lovest Thou Me? And Ryle says, Life or death, heaven or hell, depend on, your, on our ability to answer the simple question, Do you love Christ? And he goes on to explain, A true Christian is not a mere baptized man or woman. He is something more. He's not a person who only goes as a matter of form to a church or chapel on Sundays and lives all the rest of the week as if there was no God. Formality is not Christianity. Ignorant lip worship is not true religion. The scripture speaks expressly. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. Romans 9, 6. The practical lesson of those words is clear and plain. All are not true Christians who are members of the visible church of Christ. The true Christian is one whose religion is in his heart and life. It's felt by himself in his heart. There's one thing in a true Christian which is eminently peculiar to him. That thing is love to Christ. Then he provides a list of the peculiar marks by which love to Christ makes itself known. But, but think about this for a minute. Okay, 1877. He was saying, there's people sitting in pews who ain't Christians. We could jump to 1950 when Tozer wrote The Knowledge of the Holy and, and he wrote that great treatise just about hustling, bustling worshipers who are, are just basically showing up on Sunday but being consumed by everything else. And that's why we continue to say, and, and why Solomon so wisely said, there's nothing new under the sun. There have been lost people showing up in the temple. There have been lost people showing up to worship, claiming to be Christ for a long time. So then Ryle just goes through and, and he provides eight things. And just bear with me. I, I want to I go through them. Because you, you, you keep in mind when you read these things, you keep in mind a love relationship. As, you know, for those of you in love, married, engaged, thinking about love, whatever it is. I mean, there are some prevalent things. But it has to do with a love relationship. What we do about Christ. First thing he says, if we love Christ, we'll think about him. Christ is often present in the believer's thoughts. We remember his name, his character, or his deeds. We think about all he has done to save us, all that he is doing, all that he will still do. Ephesians 3.17 says that Christ dwells in our heart. True Christians think much on Christ. Ralph says the true Christian has thoughts of Christ every day that he lives for one simple reason, that he loves him. He says if we love Christ, we want to hear about him. The believer finds pleasure in listening to those who speak about Christ. True Christians most enjoy sermons that are full of Christ. They enjoy the company of those who speak much of Christ. The disciples said, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Over in Luke 24, 32. We want to hear about him. We want to talk about him. We want to hear about him. If we love Christ, we'll read about him. The true Christian delights in the scriptures because they speak of Christ. The beloved Savior, it is not wearisome to read a letter from a loved one. I, I, like that word. I like that sentence. It's not wearisome. It's not a bother. It's not a nuisance to read a letter from a loved one. Now, how many people grew up in the age of writing letters? Okay. I mean, it's a lost art form. 
But, but think about when you were writing letters, receiving letters from your, your, maybe, or your spouse. I mean, I'm sure some, some of us older folks did that. Man, you didn't put it off. You said, oh, I got a letter from Terry. I'm going to put it over here. I'll read it. I'll read it later on today when I have time. Or I'll, maybe I'll read it tomorrow. I'll get to it. No, man, I, you drop everything. You rip that sucker open. And you sit down and you pour over it. And then you pour over it again because you got to look for the little the stuff between the lines, you know, that's being said. And, and you, then you look for the subtle nuances. And, and then, you know, you take your hermeneutic principles and you apply that letter and you put it against the other letter and put them all together and you get this great package. But I love that, that line because it says, it's not wearisome, it's not a bother to read a letter from a loved one. The Lord Jesus declared, you search the scriptures. It's they that bear witness about me, John 5, 39. The Christian can't be happy without reading and studying the Bible. Why? It's because the scriptures testify of him whom his soul loves, even Christ. It's not a bother to sit down and read letters from a loved one. If we love Christ, we seek to please him. We're glad to discover what Jesus likes what he dislikes. We're willing to deny ourselves to please him. To someone who loves Christ, the commandments are not burdensome. You know, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15. His commandments are not burdensome, 1 John 5, 3. His burden is, we just talked about this, his burden is light, and we, and we gladly bear it because we love him. If we love Christ, we want to be with his friends. True Christians regard all other Christians as friends because they're friends of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I've called you friends, John 15, 15. There's a bond of union between all the friends of Jesus. Why, Ryle says, it's simply affection to the same Savior and love to the same Lord. I'll tell you, so many people, so many people take, take this lightly. They take church fellowship and unity, and worship, and, and discipleship, and, and sharpening, and everything else. They take it lightly. They say, yeah, I'll get to church, or I won't get to church. You know, I, I got other things I could be doing today. I got to get ready for this, or I've got to do this, or I've got to go here. And it should humble us and it should, when we have that mindset, disgrace us because we think about who Christ said, this is my bride. This is my bride. I gave my life for her. I want you to cherish her. It's like that ridiculous rant or post that went around about, yeah, I love Jesus, I just don't like church. Or I love Jesus, I hate the church. Really? It's like someone saying to me, yeah, Kevin, I like you, but I don't like Terry. I'm sorry, we're a package deal. That's what Jesus says, we're a package deal. The church is my bride. If you love me, you better love my church. If we love Christ, we want to be with his friends. We don't forsake getting together. We're serious, we're sincere. If we love Christ, we're jealous for his name and honor. 
We don't like to hear anyone speak against Jesus. We feel jealous to maintain his interests and reputation. Again, I, I think of it from, from a spouse standpoint. If someone is defaming your spouse, man, I, I hope you stand up and defend and protect. because That's what we're called to do. We love Christ, we need to be jealous for His name and honor. The Word of God says, Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints in Jude 3. The true Christian feels a godly jealousy toward all efforts to minimize his master's word or name or church or day. Why? It's because the Christian loves Christ. Love Isaiah 26.8 because that latter part says, For your name and your renown are the desire of my soul. Number seven, if we, love, if we love Christ, we'll talk to Him. The believer has no difficulty in speaking to his Savior. We tell him our thoughts. We pour out our hearts to Him. We, we have no hesitation about telling anything that's on our mind. We're not happy until we've spoken our minds and our hearts to our friend. We ask for comfort and difficulty. Quotes Philippians 4, 6, Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let those requests be made known to God. And His peace, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts minds in Christ Jesus. See, the Christian must converse with his Savior continually or he would faint by the way. And why? Simply because he loves him. And finally, if we love Christ, we want to be with him. Thinking, hearing, and talking are all important, but if we love a person, we want to be near him. The true Christian wants to hold communion with Christ without interruption. The true Christian longs for that day when he will see Christ face to face. Revelation 22, 20 says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Again, just, just some old, old thoughts. That's nothing new that is so prevalent to who we are. So profound to who we are. See, the overarching theme in these three little verses is simply Jesus saying, look, what are you going to do with David's divine descendant? What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do about him? What do you say about him? And as he stated previously, do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him? Church, do we love him? Do we love him? Do we love him? Let's pray. Father God, again, Lord, just, uh, just praise you for who you are. Lord, I, I thank you. Just as we think about love, that, that Lord, you are the author of love. You say that, that the only way we love is because you first loved us. So Father, I just thank you for that gift, for the example for the portrait that you paint for us. And Father, we, we should resonate with, with thankfulness because of the price you paid. Lord, help us to be a people that makes much ado about you. 
Help us to cherish time with you, to seek to get to know you better, to make your name and renown our, our desire. And Lord, to um, make that known to those around us. And Father, if there's any of us here who are struggling with, with pride or stubbornness or selfishness or fear, God, I ask that you, you break that and bring it to repentance. And Father, as always, we just we thank you for your goodness and your gifts to us in spite of us. Lord, we love you and, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.